gotta testify. Come up in the spot looking extra fly. For the day I die, I'ma touch the sky. Gotta testify. Come up in the spot looking extra fly. For the day I die, I'ma touch the sky. Back when they thought pink polos are hurt the rock Before Cam got the shit to pop, the doors is closed I felt like bad boy street team, I couldn't work the locks Now let's go, take them back to the plan Me and my mama hopped in that U-Haul van Any pessimists, I ain't talk to them Plus I ain't had no phone in my apartment Let's take them back to the club At least about an hour I stand on line I just wanted to dance I went to Jacob for an hour after I got my advance I just wanted to shine Jay's favorite line, dog, in due time Now they look at me like, damn, dog, you what I am A hip-hop legend, I think I died in an accident Cause this must be heaven I gotta testify Come up in the spot looking extra fly For the day I die, I'ma touch the sky Gotta testify Come up in the spot looking extra fly yeah. For the day I die I'ma touch the sky Now let's take them high Yo, what's up? Welcome back Now, something fascinating happened early this week Or by the time you hear about this It'll be last week A certain figure decided to make a huge statement On the first day of Black History Month Oh, I know what you're thinking. I must be talking about Brian Flores' massive lawsuit levied against the NFL. Nope, but we'll get to him in a moment. Because it sort of relates. Now, I'm actually talking about a certain Florida governor who has not only submitted his plan for redistricting towards the Florida legislature, but is asking his hand-picked Florida Supreme Court to weigh in on his controversial plan. Now, why is this controversial, may I ask? Well, it's because his plan would diminish black representation on the congressional level. So why would a governor who has clearly appointed a few black people during his time be so hell-bent in diminishing black representation? Because he knows it's not the one-off high-level appointments that matters in black empowerment. It's the representation. Sort of like how an organization will and can hire a black person in the front office, but will refuse to put one in the coach's sideline because they know Representation matters. Oftentimes when charges of discrimination are levied, an organization will point to the hires that represent its diversity. Now, I want to make this very clear. Just because you yourself are not oppressive and or your experiences don't earmark oppression doesn't mean you're not part of an oppressive system. Oftentimes we operate with the narcissism that not only reflects our purview of the facts, well, this is my experience, therefore the state of things on how the world works, unquote. That's like saying racism, sexism, and bigotry doesn't exist because you have yet to experience slash experience or feel it. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's important that we don't carry the water of white supremacy just because you've been afforded a drink. The main idea of the solar system was proposed by Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus in 1543, who said the sun was the center of the solar system, and it made planets move around it in perfect circles in his book entitled On the Revolution of Celestial Spears in 1543, published in Latin. Can you imagine a world that says that the Earth is flat and the center of the universe just because we want to ignore facts and highlight our own experiences? Of course not. Yet this is what happens when people put their experiences at the center of a bigger problem. You and your experiences are not the center of the universe, nor some token and or one-off an example of the bigger problem that's been levied. 
Now back to that other big news from last week concerning a certain NFL coach looking on looking to take on the world's most powerful nonprofit organization. He really shook up the sports sealer system with his civil action. Now, will his lawsuit mean anything in the larger scope? Maybe, maybe not. That remains to be seen. But as the old adage goes, in order for one to reach their goal, you must aim for the stars just to land on the moon. But in order to do that, you got to touch the sky. And if you can help it, preferably look extra fly. All right, so welcome back to Uncultured Bias. Uh, you know, last week we had a pretty good good run. We had dropped two podcasts, uh, one on the Janet Jackson documentary, and of course we did a high-level intellectual conversation surrounding black representation on the Supreme Court. Uh, check those out. Um, obviously, if you are on Spotify or Apple, please share. Um, you know, thank you guys for listening. I, you know, one thing I ask you guys to do is continue to rate the show on Apple. If you are listening on the uh, Apple device, uh, we're going to shout out to our um, sponsors, MyCompassTaxAdvisors.com. Uh, you can reach them at MyCompassTax.com or 850-270-7193. Of course, uh, if you're looking in a market for real estate, contact Keystone Global Real Estate at uh, 407-680-8510. And of course, you can reach Smith & Williams Trial Group uh, if you're in uh, the market for uh, estate planning, wills, guardianships, power of attorneys, trusts, all that fun stuff. And you can reach us at 888-SWTG-LAW or at cwilliams.swtglaw.com. All right. Done all that nice little uh, opening. And I want to go ahead and bring on my guest. Uh, he was actually on my podcast last year and... Ironically or unironically, uh, he was on the second week's podcast. So we just started off season two. Welcome back, Laron. You still, you still with me? I'm with you, brother. How you doing, man? I'm doing well, bro. Doing well. Thank you for coming back on this pod, man. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, last year we had you and a really great response. And uh, I actually want you to have you on more often than not, but she's so busy, bro. So, man, three kids, a wife. I know. By the way, brother- can- Cong- I barely have enough time for my job, but you know I'm trying to. <laughs> Congratulations on on uh, your child. He's like what, what, two months now or three months. What are It'll we? be three months, uh, February eighth. Yeah, that's that's dope, yeah. man. Jalen, my my baby boy. Yeah, you done? Are you guys done? I don't have a choice, man. He said, <laughs> he said put that thing in his holster. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, our families are close, man. And so I know uh, your wife, like, you know, she's like, I don't want I'm done. <laughs> she really just focused on being at her finest before she turns 40. So that's really what this is about. Ah, so, okay. I got you. I got you. I got I to step back. She gave me three and five years. So, I mean. That's, that's a lot. That's Hey, that's kind of like Steph Curry numbers, man. You know. Yeah. Three, yeah, years, <laughs> she, she she definitely could hold up the trophy. Yeah, you know? she likes <laughs> Chef Curry, so I got to I got to respect that. Yeah, definitely, definitely, man. Um, yo, your oldest, uh, though, King, man, he, he I saw a video that he was balling on the football field. Yeah, he's starting to learn a little bit. The first, the first week was really interesting because he had never played, so he was just out there running around crazy. But then the second week, he he started to get the hang of it. Got a few touchdowns. Had Mama go crazy in the stands so it's been fun to just see his growth and it's you know once kids get comfortable it's it's really fun to watch them in that type of environment yeah yeah i um you know oh by the way just proper introduction Laron is uh he, he played in the nba for a number of years still has a number of different connections after, after the nba he worked in at nike and now he's back 
with another NBA organization in a uh, front office role. So uh, just get proper perspective. Um, so just to kind of piggyback uh, <laughs> or segue into uh, from football, I want to you know get your thoughts on the whole Brian Flores situation. Like we can do a deep dive, but I wanted to give you some room to kind of like, what was your initial reaction or just thoughts on everything? Well, I think my first initial reaction was, wow, you know, it takes a lot of courage for a, black head coach who's up for head coaching positions mm -hmm. make this type of move knowing that the ramifications historically have been proven to be very severe in terms of his career moving forward and so my first reaction was like wow that's just takes some real courage mm -hmm. and anybody who knows the story of muhammad ali when he refused to fight you know he he was really without work for almost three years yeah. and it caused a lot of financial hardships on him and just the public blowback, you know, now everybody is cool to love Ali, you know, but back then, similar to, you know, how most of our black civil rights leaders were, they weren't loved right. until they no longer with us or unable to really, you know, with Ali, when he lost his ability to really speak, people really started to, you know, throw in the I love Ali t-shirts. But, mm -hmm. you know, so when I saw it, I was really impressed that Brian was willing to put himself on the line like this knowing that it could really have some severe ramifications for his career as a head coach. And then after kind of listening to it and having a chance to digest it, you know, I was, I applauded him because anybody can see that the NFL as most sports leagues do has an issue with diversity in its coaching and executive ranks. Right. And so I was happy that he is taking this step to bring it to light I was, un you know, unfortunately for him to have the experiences that he's had, that that's not fun. That's not cool to hear about. But it's so many black coaches and minority coaches who I'm sure can relate to what he's going through that, you know, I think it'll be a great opportunity for the world and the sports world in particular to have a real conversation and bring some some awareness to what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I thought um, this definitely open the doors to really talk about like what is uh representation you know to your point it's i know there was a question that was um given to him when he was on doing the rounds on different sports shows and about well, you know you're up for some coaching jobs right now and how does that affect you and um it let's just you know be honest here like <laughs> No team's gonna hire him at this point. <laughs> like it's, you know, like he can put his, he could throw his hat on. It, if it was, it was hard enough for him to get a job anyway. Yeah. Um, he just pretty much put the kibosh on that. Like that's not happening. You yeah. Know? I mean, yeah. I mean, you would. I'm still hopeful, but I'm I'm being really unrealistically optimistic about it because we know how this works. You know, the owners are going to show some level of solidarity. And so it's really unlikely that one of them will break that. It's almost like the blue wall, right? Right. Like I, I don't think anybody's going to step across that that line and say, "Hey, you know what? While this lawsuit is going on, come coach my football team." But I'm hopeful that somebody will have the courage to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. He's obviously qualified. Anybody who's been watching the NFL over the last past three years, his Miami Dolphins teams when he got there were very, very, very poor in terms of talent level. The organization was in disarray and he's managed despite that to take them to two winning seasons in a row which something i think hasn't been done in 18 years mm. and he did that with a, a young quarterback who was in and out of the lineup that he wasn't which, even a fan of 
Yeah, and, and that's the other thing. There's been a lot of talk about the fact that that's not even the quarterback that he wanted to take. Right. He wanted to take a guy in San Diego, right. who I'm Chargers, L.A. Chargers, Justin Herbert, who has become a star. Right. And so, you know, and, and the other thing, too, that was that is very telling. When he, when they fired him, they kind of leaked out information that he was difficult to get along with. Yeah. And that's something that we see as black men, black people so often. Right. Happen in all of our workforces is that we get labeled as difficult or angry or mm-hmm. all of these things that stain our reputation mm-hmm. and w- make an already tough process even harder because now you have this label attached to you. So, you know, I think he has proven himself to be a very capable head coach, but we know that there are bigger issues that are, you know, at hand that may prevent him from getting that opportunity. You just said something very interesting because you're, you're right about that. Like these are, these code words that are given to describe um, just black people are, you know, tied to such emotional responses um, that it, it, you know, it gives a context to a, a negative context rather to our ability to do the job. Right. Yeah. You know, hard to be around, hard to work with, hard to actually um, to, to deal with, you know, hard, hard to manage. They can't relate. That's another one you hear sometimes like, oh, you know, I, we just want to hire somebody that relate, I can relate to, yeah, you know, yeah. it, it, these are very subcultural statements to design that they're othering you, yeah. you know? Absolutely. And we see it. I mean, it's historically, right? Right. And this thing that we've heard historically throughout our time here in, in terms of how black people are, are kind of coded language to represent something that's not even truthful, you know, for me personally, Working in the NBA, one of the things you hear all the time is when teams are considering hiring a guy who played in the league, a black player, they'll say, you know, but I heard he's lazy. He doesn't want to do the work. And it's a coded language because there's this underbelly of kind of racist tones where people are making statements that are not rooted in anything factual. Yeah. And my, my response to that is, so you think this guy who busted his butt to do what the odds say are really one in a million is all of a sudden going to get here and be like, nah, I don't want to work. Right. Like think about what you're saying, yeah. you know, but that's kind of the the same thing we saw when we heard Brian Flores get fired. He's difficult to work with. And, you know, like you said, this is something that we hear and see on a constant basis. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, the, 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 the facts don't, levy towards the accusations, right? Because if he's difficult to work with, he wouldn't have um, winning seasons. His players wouldn't go out there to to bat for him on the field because that's where it matters, right? It's the work product. And, like, you can tell when a, a team stops playing, you know, stops t- starts tuning out the coach or is not re- responding well to their coach. And that is not the case, I, you know, at least from what I see on the field. I mean, do you, you agree with that? First of all, if your team is going to reflect in a lot of ways if they're still fighting for you, right? And right. we watched the Dolphins throughout this year. They got off to a terrible start. Yeah. They didn't get on him. They yeah. kept fighting. That says a lot about how they feel about their coach. Yeah. Number, number two, if you did an expose on every NFL team mm-hmm. and asked people in the organization if the coach has some difficult team where every single coach is hard to do, you think Bill Belichick's easy to work for? <laughs> 
<laughs> like you, you, you think these guys are like easy to work? No, because it's a demanding job. So yeah, personalities sometimes get in the way. Now, does that mean that you should disrespect people or you mm-hmm. should be belittling people? No, mm-hmm. but it's not an easy job. So yeah, there will be times and moments where everybody's a little difficult to work for. It's a very high stressful environment. So when you hear that, you have to ask yourself, is that a is that like an outlier? You know, and then the other thing is, is he difficult to work for because he's asking for things that you're not willing to give him? If he says, hey, I really like this quarterback. This is the quarterback I think that can lead our team. Right. And you say, no, we're going with this quarterback. And then the other quarterback that he wanted turns out to be the star. Shouldn't he have a little bit of feeling about that? You right. know, it's just human nature. So you have to be careful about what you hear in the media, what's leaked, and always ask yourself the question, who does this benefit? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it's uh, it's fascinating because I remember <laughs> you, talk, you talk about Belichick and they say he's just grumpy and, you know, he's, you know but he, he wants to win. That's the, because that's again coded language, right? Like if it, it changes, this, it could be the same characteristics, right? Yeah. But it could be like, no, but he's just focused on winning. You know, and that's what makes him a genius. That's what makes him a great coach. Um, you know, I remember the same thing when they, they talk about Bill Walsh in the 80s. And, like, you know what I mean? Like, he's, you know, he, he's a, a, someone who obsesses about perfection. And it can be, it, it can be uh, um, almost, it could be a turnoff for those who don't understand it. Like, you know, but they, they code it into, like, these things that build up the, the legacy of these white coaches. But when you, talk about, when you talk about black coaches, and this is, Really, something I thought things are fascinating. Their their winning is not representative of their genius. Like I give an example, Mike Tomlin when he won his first Super Bowl, um, you know, they were talking. I remember the the language surrounding it was, "Oh, that's Dick LeBeau's defense." <laughs> right, right, right. You know what I'm saying? I was like, "Well, no, uh, he's a defensive coordinator," but. It's like you kept hearing things like Dick LeBeau, Dick LeBeau, and I'm like, and I think to myself, that's fascinating because you don't really hear about other coordinators when, when <laughs> other coaches are winning the the big game. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you hear about how great and how genius this coach was. Yep. You know, it, they did the same thing to Tony Dungy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like you yep. know, and so it's always diminishing the genius or the talent level of some of the black coaches' ability to really um, get winning out of the team, you know, it, it, by way of choice of words. And so we, I, go ahead. We playing out in Kansas City, right? So the right. last two offensive coordinators for Andy Reid before Eric Bieniemy both got head coaching jobs. Yeah. Eric Bieniemy has led the Kansas City Chiefs to a Super Bowl win as an offensive coordinator right. in four consecutive AFC championship games. Right. Two bowls included in that. Right. And all you hear people saying is, I don't think he calls the plays. <laughs> Fascinating. Like so, all of a sudden, Andy Reid decided after having two offensive coordinators going to be head coaches. Right. You know what? I'm going to take back play calling duties now that Eric Bieniemy is. It's just another example of how this the playing field is tilted against us. But it's black coaches and black executives. But then there's this head coach. I'm um, excuse me. This coordinator in Dallas that is getting looks for head coaching positions, and their <laughs> offense looked terrible in the playoffs. <laughs> Right, terrible, and you know it is like he just came out of nowhere this year as like he's a hot. He's definitely going to get a job. He's a hot commodity, and I'm just like, it's interesting about that is if you watch, if you look at the Cowboys' record against really good teams and good defenses, you see something very interesting. 
what do you catch? Just go back and look. They're, they're not very good. Oh. That, that gets a lot of numbers against poor defenses. Mm. Mm. And that that that's telling to me. Now, I, I need to go back and actually do some real – I don't have as many statistics, but just off the eye test, when you look at the San Francisco 49er game, they, yeah. they couldn't get anything done. Yeah, they couldn't, couldn't move the ball. And you yeah. judge really good offenses in the playoffs, right? right? right. If you get a good offense, then in the playoffs is going to show – I haven't yet to see that. So, you know, again, Eric being me, four straight AFC championship games, a Super Bowl, two Super Bowl wins, and he can't even get a sniff of a head coaching job. You know, so you have to wonder, Todd Bowles. Yeah, (laughs) same thing. Defensive coordinator for the Bucs, number one run defense in the league, Super Bowl winning defense. They absolutely dominated in the playoffs last year. Yeah. Can't get a look. Keep the same team. Uh, Byron Leftwich. Exactly, you know. So, it's, you know, it's so and, and he removed himself from the Jags job uh, quite recently, but he should have been had a job. He should have been had a job. And, and yeah, I, I'm sorry, think, go ahead. Again, it's the same. Yeah, you know, it's just the, the same type of examples of the playing field not being fair or even. You know, and that's that's disheartening. You know, mm-hmm. even you look at the amount of coordinators that we have that are black in the NFL, offensive defensive coordinators. It's it's disheartening. Yeah. Yeah, because that's supposed to be the launching pad to becoming a head coach. The the New York Giants, who are in this controversy, yeah, hired Joe Judge from the New England Patriots. He was a special teams coach, <laughs> and it shows. By the way, <laughs> right, that's like running quarterback sneaks on third and eight, right? Right. But it's like, as if you're a black coach and you see this, how can you not look at the system and be like, "This is unfair"? Right, Jim Harbaugh. Was about to walk himself into a job in in Minnesota until he d- he decided to come back to, to yeah. college. You know what I mean? Self out of that. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, the funny thing about Brian Leftwich, a cool little story. AB said, um, you know, he, he said, uh, you know, he's obviously no longer on the team, but uh, he said what he liked about Byron Leftwich was he told the boys he was like, hey, if any of y'all got bonuses in y'all contracts, let me know because I'm about to. I, I'm all about getting y'all your money. You know. Yeah. You saw yeah. you saw that quote. Yep, I saw it. And, and then Avi said something like, you know, he's like, look, um, you know, I like guys like that. Players love guys like that because they care about you, you know. And that means he's going to run plays in order for you to meet your your uh, your salary benchmarks. And here's, go ahead, I'm sorry. A, Byron Leftwich had the confidence of Tom Brady. Yeah, there it is. Think about that, man. There it is. What more do you need to say? Mm. Mm. You know, you know who Adam Gase is. Yes, yeah. He got the head coaching job with Miami because Peyton Manning said that's my guy. Mm. Brian mm. Leftwood has the confidence of Tom Brady. Like, what more can anybody say? You know, when you think about that. Yeah, yeah. That's that's. I didn't even think about that. That's true. That's that's that is. You know, and Tom Brady's considered the goat. You Come know? on, man! Like if 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 Tom Brady trusts the guy, right? Right. Who are we talking about? Right. 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 You know. So I think Brian's lawsuit. Hopefully, who knows how it's going to go in court? Right. You're a lawyer. We both know being able to prove allegations is very difficult, right? And right. the NFL's. If this does get to that point, which I don't think it will, it but won't. if it does, they're going to come with a high-powered legal team and drag it out and all these different things. I, I think it's going to eventually get settled the way cap days because I just don't think they want 
anybody peeking under the hood. Well, I no, think. that's really the thing. I, I, you know, and, um, I, I tell people when I, I'm, I'm on a couple, I've been on a couple uh, other podcasts and shows throughout the country, and um, they had me on, and I said, "Listen, uh, the the idea that this lawsuit is going to go to trial is preposterous. It's not getting to trial. It's going to, it's going to probably end in about." Mm, I would say I would cap it at two years, right? Two years. And um, and about that time, they may go through arbitration, um, but definitely go through mediation. But really, what the NFL doesn't want—they don't want the dirty laundry of the discovery. You do you do lawsuits like these not because you're trying to bring them to trial. You're trying to bring out discovery to bring them right. to a heel so you can get to the table of negotiation. That's gotcha. the whole point of it. Okay. You know, yeah, and yeah, and so I, that's really the thing. Like, honestly, because even looking at some of the lawsuit, it's like, mm, there's not, you know, there's, uh, I don't know if he has a, 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 you know, he has standing here. Like, I look at certain things like, oh, there's no standing here. Oh, that's not a strong argument. But it's really not that a complaint doesn't have to be strong in order to, you know, get it to a phase of discovery. You just have to, you know, meet some preliminary, aspects of things in order to get it to a certain place where we can get to discovery process in trial. And that's, yeah. you know, that's kind of what I, you know, I, I had a conversation, you know, barbershop talk with the guys and yeah, I listen, man, as you saw with the cap situation, the NFL is not trying to go to trial, right? Like they don't want people pulling out these emails and getting into like, they don't want that. And for cap, it was like, do you want to drag this out, you know, and make this a long drawn out process when at the end you may not even get anything out of it. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, with Brian, I think what's really going to be interesting to me with, with Brian's lawsuit, there's going to be a lot of NFL coaches, former and present black coaches who are going to come out with their own stories. Yeah. And that, to me, is going to be really interesting to see how that plays into this equation. Yeah. Because, again, to prove allegations is, is very difficult in certain instances, but to hear people's stories and to hear what they've experienced, you know, that can sway the public opinion of the league and the league as we know is very sensitive to when the public stops paying attention to those games yeah yeah and I, that might be the thing that really you know impacts how this goes so i you know a bit, uh, later on in the conversation i want to i want to talk about um the ripple effects and um kaepernick but i actually want to ask you an interesting question um you know as i was uh, talking to your wife and uh, she sent me a text message um, early in the week, and then she, you know, revealed that she was actually sitting next to you when she sent this message. It was about uh, Brian Flores having white attorneys. <laughs> yeah, that was the first thing she said. <laughs> yeah. um, and so we had this, you know, long text message exchange. Um, and so, you know, I thought that was fascinating because obviously you're married to a black attorney. Yeah. You know, and you know other black attorneys, and yep. um, you know it led levied this conversation within a lot of black legal chat groups about you know the hardship we face um, when you know trying to get these type of suits because we're not given the same type of look that you know other other lawyers or law firms are given, but even still it's even insult to injury when you're suing for racial discrimination and you don't even consider black representation. 
yeah. I, I mean, that's the first thing she said. Like, and I was like, man, I didn't, even, I didn't even think about it because I'm so caught up in what he's saying, right? And trying to hear his point of view and really hear, you know, what he has to offer in terms of evidence and experience, what he's, you know, talking about. But she was like, wow, he's doing a civil, he's doing a, a, a lawsuit based on racism and discrimination and he, he doesn't even have a black lawyer and i was like wow that's true and you know that's something that we as a community have to address too internally even from the standpoint i, I don't know me and you talked about this but hiring black lawyers black agents yeah. black people you know having this idea that you can't hire people who look like you because they're not credible enough or they don't have enough ex you know we've got to get past that but, you know we're, we're always addressing what the other institutions do but we as a community have to be more willing to hire people who look like us too to represent us in, in a lot of these matters as well. You, you know, know, and to that point, like I, I was talking to a friend of mine, a good friend, and, you know, he's a pretty successful guy. And so I was kind of joking with him. I was like, you know, um, you know, when you're ready, let me, uh, let me do a, let me, you know, give, do an estate plan for you. Right. And so then he says, um, you know, he joked like, I'm not going to go to you because he has a he he has a Jewish lawyer for his um uh, for his uh, 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 business. He, he's in entertainment. And I, he's like, I'm going to go to I'm going to go to my lawyer. And I was like, well, that's very interesting because, you know, me and we're good friends and, you know, I do good work. And even though we're kind of joking, but like, like, why would you like joke like like pretty much because you make a joke like, oh, you probably mess me up. And I was like, why would you make a joke like that? Right. You know, like I know we I know we're joking, but I got serious at that moment like cuz that's in you know, that's deep seated within your subconscious of a you know, you don't think I could do the job. Cuz even if you don't go to me, but like why would you you did you say that to the to the other attorney that you're that is representing you? And obviously he predated that relationship predates him and I, you know, right. cuz we started getting close in the last couple of years, but so I didn't I never asked to like represent him, but I just thought like did you did you automatically say oh well they don't know what they're talking about based off of you know the 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 color of their skin or the lack of melanin rather you know uh, it's real it's real. You know, I, I heard something a few years ago that really stuck stuck with me and i had to kind of do some self-reflection too mm -hmm. somebody said it's really interesting when you have a black business let's say you have a clothing business right yeah you go into the clothing store of a black business and first thing people say when they go to the counter is come on man hook me up Right. Yeah. And the person said, but I've never seen anybody of color in a Gucci store asking them for a hookup. No. Yeah. You know, and, and it just speaks to the the deep seated subconscious mentality we have about how we approach dealing business with our people versus others. Yeah. And I had to look be like, dang, I've been guilty of that. Not in a long time, but right. I've there have been times where I've been guilty of that, of expecting because you look like me, then you should give me a, a favor or a discount. And never expecting that from people who don't look like me. Yeah. And I think that's something we have to really kind of check our own biases towards our own people and the way we see our own people. Because what you're saying is absolutely true. You know, I've had conversations like this with a lot of the young guys in, in the NBA. And even when I worked at Jordan Brand, you know, why did you choose the agent you chose? You know, yeah. was there somebody of color that was in the running? Like, what, what, what was it about this person that made them not the final pick? And a lot of times it just comes down to programming. Yeah. They're just programmed to go with a certain 
person because they think that's more acceptable or this person will do a better job. And we have to really start challenging those thoughts and those biases in our own community with our, you know, with, with the way we handle and look at business. You know, and, and to that point, it's also this is how you create community generational partnership and wealth, you know, because it's shown that when, you know, black people, when we earn income, we just don't hoard that within ourselves. We often diverse that, divest that into whether community programs or our own family. So right. you're not just helping somebody in their family, immediate family or their immediate situation. You're, you're giving a spider web of opportunities to other people who you don't, you may not even know. Yeah. And, and, and I, I, it's, it's something that we know this, but yet we still operate with this sense of, mm, I need it, you know, I need a, 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 I need a discount. I need a hookup. That's why I, I, t- I tell people and even like my friends who are in professional businesses and they operate, I was like, yo, just tell me, tell me what the price is. And, I'm, and I always say, don't tell me the price you want to tell me because of our relationship. Tell me what you would charge me if you don't know me, you right. know, because I don't want the hookup. I always say, don't, I will pay you for your services. And I wouldn't, I never, I never argue anybody down for their price because if that's the price you, you quote me, I'm assuming and you're telling me that price in good faith because that's what you feel like your worth is, you know. Right. And I would never say you're too expensive. You're too expensive. You know, you, you, you I can't. Your services are not worth that much because what? Right. Clearly, I'm going to you because I have a problem. So, yep. so just quote me. Just quote me. Just tell me what you are, and I, 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 and I will have to deal with it. Like, can I afford that? Not whether yeah. your prices are too expensive. Like, can I afford to meet that threshold of which you've put out? So. Not- Real thing. So for me, the way I handle it now is I just ask everybody for a discount. <laughs> <laughs> I'm frugal. Some would say you are frugal. Something. Yeah, yeah. The way I made it, the way I made it fair is now I ask everybody. <laughs> fair. That's can I get a discount. Can I get a? <laughs> uh, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> you know, kind of running along with your point. You know, I, I really believe that it has to be a concerted thing. We start with our kids. Yeah. Understanding that black business is valuable yeah. and we should look at it as such and not look at I, I had a point that I was trying to think of, but there is a trepidation in terms of how we approach black business. And, oh, this is what I was going to say. We have to stop acting like every black business represents every black person. I thought right? I actually thought about that when you, yeah, you know, yes, thank you. Thank one you. One black person does somebody wrong. It's like, oh, that's why I don't mess with that. That's why I, yeah. it's like, you know how many other communities have messed people over? Yeah. And we don't hold that one person accountable for the whole community. Right. But when it's in the black community and like one person does something to mess somebody over, it's like now everybody has to fall under the same umbrella because this lack of this, this lack of trust is already running rampant amongst us from the start. Yep. It's this self-hate. It's- fight, yeah. We have to fight that urge to want to just push everybody under one umbrella because one company or one business did us wrong or did somebody wrong, you know, that's another thing I've, I've seen happen a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's fascinating. That's a fascinating thing because I often think to myself, like when they say, Oh, you know, black business. And I said to myself, like, to your point, I'm like, you know, we're the only people that really get that charge levied against us because in any other aspect, let's just look at the presidency. There are a number of white presidents that have like screwed us. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, white male presidents that have screwed us 
and nobody says, "Well, that last that last white man really screwed us." So maybe we need to we need to go ahead and look into some other places for some leadership. He's like, "No, no, 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 no." But you know, we don't do that. We like, no, that guy looks presidential. You know, yeah. yeah. But when Barack was, he's like, "Oh, I hope he don't mess up." Hope right. it, I hope we don't mess up because he's gonna ruin it for the rest of us. I'm like, what? Why? Why? No question. That is a real thing. Like, we hold this person accountable for our whole community, and everything they do or don't do is a representation of every black person everywhere. Mm. And we're the only community that does that, you know, we got to get past that, man. It's it's really unfortunate that we have that mentality. Not all of us, but it, it is prevalent a lot. And when we talk about business and how we deal with business, it's the same thing with churches. Yeah. Somebody goes to a church and the pastor is in a scam. See, that's why I'm fooled with black. This is why I'm fooled with churches. This is why I'm fooled with churches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, okay. You do no research because you ain't going nowhere on Sunday. Right. You know, um, I want to I want to talk about ripple effects, but before I do that, I'm gonna play a clip. And um, you know, and we can I want to get your thoughts on the clip and then you'll see where I'm going with this. So okay. Though it ultimately failed, Flood's case had laid the groundwork for players to settle the issue at the negotiating table. We lost the case, but it was nevertheless very important because people got to know what was going on and why Kurt Flood was doing this. Three years later, pitchers Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally won an arbitration case that found owners could no longer renew players' contracts in perpetuity opening free agency to all veteran major leaguers. Big league baseball owners have maintained a grip on their players so strong that it has amounted to almost total control of their careers. Now that absolute power may be ending. The league also adopted what some call the Kurt Flood rule, allowing players to veto any trade once they have spent 10 years in the major leagues, including five with their current team. But it was too late for Flood himself. Beset by financial and drinking problems, he exiled himself to the island of Majorca. He spiraled down into alcoholism, worked in a bar, which is maybe the worst thing an alcoholic could do, and ran out of money, and came back to Oakland, California in 1976, really a broken man. What amazes me about Kurt Floyd's case is that some of the other great baseball players sat silently on the sidelines and said nothing. That's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine in basketball. We knew that Kurt Flood was trying to achieve, and we felt he was right. Three months after Flood had filed his lawsuit in 1970, Oscar Robertson and 13 other professional basketball players sued to abolish the reserve clause in the NBA, following an earlier failed attempt by star Rick Barry. Six years later, they reached a settlement to bring free agency to their sport. The awakening was happening. But you can only tell after the fact. Free agency has been a, been a wonderful sun coming up over the mountains, warming up the whole valley. On March 1st, free agency came to the National Football League. Wayne Gretzky has signed a contract with New York's hockey team. Though in many cases, real power remains with the owners, free agency soon began to shift the balance across American professional sports. Anxious. So... I played that clip for a number of reasons. Um, when I was thinking about Brian Flores' lawsuit, I immediately started thinking about Kurt Flood. Yeah. And, you know, I played it. I know that clip is a little long, but I wanted to give people who are not familiar, like, just how important Kurt Flood really was 
to our current environment of yep. sports. Yep. But it, it, go ahead. I'm sorry. That part is like he never saw the benefits of it. Never saw the benefits of it. You know, so that that's that's really really sad. You know that he fought that hard for something that, and it's similar, not the same. And I don't want to say they're the same, but when you think about Martin and Malcolm, no, you know, and honestly, and I don't think you're being disingenuous with that because, um, you know, Kurt Flood was a leader in every aspect of the word, like you know, and and. His, he actually was a phenomenal baseball player. Um, they won three titles uh, with the St. Uh, St. Louis Cardinals in like five years. And he was a uh, four-time All-Star, right? An eight-time Golden Glove um, recipient. Yep. You know, and so he was not, he was not a slouch on the field. And, nah. You know, and so the, the idea that he decided to uh, forego his career almost to step in front of you know this uh, 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 enterprise that was so oppressive, and he received so many like obviously it was, the, it was the 1960s and early 70s, so he received so much vitriol from the not only the establishment but just from fans who once cheered him. Yeah, you know, and it drove him to alcoholism. You know, and, and obviously to an early death. Yeah. And so I I, I don't hopefully. The cost of liberation is very high, man. Pardon? What did you say? The cost of liberation yeah. is extreme. Yeah. You know, the, to to seek, you know, abolition can really have an effect on your life. You know, it's, it, and it's, I've had this conversation so many times. I often think that's one of the reasons that Oscar Robinson is not more celebrated. Mm. And he was in that clip, by the way. Oh, I know. Yeah, I know. I know you know, but I'm just talking to people. Yeah. I, uh, I read Oscar's book and it really, to me, seems like one of the reasons he is not more celebrated is because of his stance Mm -hmm. that he took towards liberating players to have more freedom. Mm hmm. And it's a it's a shame because I love Jerry West. Yeah. Like he's oh, but you cannot talk about the sixties in any shape or form in the NBA and not mention Oscar Robinson. Yeah. You can't. But as a league and as a basketball world, we often do not give him the flowers and the respect that he deserves. Right. You know, because Jerry West is the logo. He's the logo. Yeah. And when you look at their careers, there's nothing that Jerry West did better than Oscar Robinson. Right. Other than played in L.A. No. Yeah. yeah. So and, he, I, and, I, he, and he won a championship. <laughs> you well, know. Oscar won one, too. I know that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 He won an Oscar. I mean, he's you talk about triple doubles. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he pretty much invented the idea of the triple double, right? <laughs> we talk about triple doubles today. This man was averaging not a like 11, 10, and 11 triple double. Right. He was... 30, 10, and 10, you know, so right. the cost of liberation is really high and, and bringing it back to Brian Flores, I'm just hoping that the community of coaches and not just black coaches, right, but white coaches and black coaches and female coaches and male coaches all support him in some way or fashion so he does not end up like Kurt Flood, feeling alienated and ostracized from, from the game because what he's doing takes courage 
what he's doing will take a community of people to support him and his family. And I'm hopeful that 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 happens, you know, as we as we move along. So I want to ask you, but what do you think the ripple effect? If I know you, if you you don't have any special powers, and maybe you do, I don't know. But um, just changing that, man. That's my only special power. <laughs> if you uh, if you can look into crystal ball, do you see, you know, something similar in this? Like I I can see how it may not be this lawsuit, but this may squeak open the door for something greater down the line. As far as, you know, I know we talk about the people say we just don't want to take away the Rooney Rooney rule. But, you know, Rooney rule is actually a joke, to be honest, um, because it doesn't really it, it gives the appearance yeah. of equality. But it's not it's clearly it's uh, it's not doing the job. It's like the it's like the flopping rule in the NBA a few years ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was really cool when they came up with it. But then you realize they weren't going to enforce it. So it's like, oh, never mind. It's a slap in the face, yeah. and, and but I, you know, the, one of the fascinating things I know, and I know Denver has come out um, in strong response to this. But he talks about how, you know, in his lawsuit, how he flew over to Denver, and they came in an interview unprepared. I, I just want to make sure I'm painting the picture here for people. You have a flight. You have a job interview in another city. So that means you got to board a plane. Yeah. And you say, all right, the job's interview at Friday at 9 a.m. That means Laron needs to leave his house on Thursday early in the day. Oh, by the way, he's probably been preparing for the interview for the entire week. Oh, for sure. Right? So then he leaves his house, his family, jumps on the plane, heads to Denver. Wants to get to Denver at an appropriate time because he didn't want to get there like at 12 a.m., right? So you want to get there, you know, Maybe around 6 p.m., 8 p.m., because you want to be able to check in your hotel, relax, and then get prepared for the next morning's interview, right? Right. So you get to your hotel. You flew across the country, right? You The interview's at 9. And I don't know when the interview was, but I'm just doing an arbitrary number that Brian Fuller is. But the interview's at 9. Get there. And you're like, you know what? I know they said it'd be 15 minutes early, but I'm going to get there at 8.30, right? Because I want to be – I don't want to be walking in the door – when they're walking in the door. Right. You know, so I want to be there ready. So I'm there at 8.30 a.m., you know, ready to go. You know, had my coffee an hour ago. Know my lines. I'm ready to hit this. All right, it's 9, 8, 8.55. All right, it's getting a little close. I don't see nobody walking to that door. But, you know, you know, people, you know, people, you know, they show up a little right, at, right on time. So, okay. Whew, 9, 9.05. All right, well, I mean, start checking your thing. You're like, you know, did did I have the time right? I thought yeah. it was I thought it was nine a.m. Okay, well nine. You know, oh. you, you know, you call your agent. You say, "Hey, I thought you said it was nine a.m." Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. They said nine a.m. Okay, okay, I'm tripping. Nine thirty. Well, damn. Like, I mean, what's <laughs> what's going on? Like, you start calling the office. Hey, I know I had an interview on the books here. Um, is am I is this still going on? Did I find was something last minute happen? No, 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 no. Have the they, date wrong? Yeah, have the date wrong. Did, like, did they cancel it? Or, no, 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 no. You, you still, we still have you scheduled for an interview, sir. And like, all right, nine thirty. All right, nine forty-five. You're like, well, I'm. I guess this interview's not happening. You know, and then you kind of, you know, but you don't. You're not sure, and you check back in, and ten o'clock happens, and they come strolling in, and when they stroll in, they look disheveled, like they've <laughs> they've been having a few drinks. Do you you know how demeaning? 
that they see you because you've been ready to go. So since the biggest interview of your life, biggest interview of your life, you've technically yeah. been ready to go since Thursday because you you prepared for this interview by jumping on your ass on a plane, and they didn't have the respect for your time to come in prepared to interview you. That now, is can the, you Im- that's the meaning. Can you imagine? All right, flip this around. Imagine if the Broncos had the number one pick in the NFL draft mm. and there were two players who they were deciding between. Mm. And one of the guys comes in and does a phenomenal interview. Phenomenal interview. The second guy comes an hour late. Yeah. Looks like he's been out all night. Drinking, yeah. And he's very unprepared for your draft meeting. Yeah. What do you think the Broncos would leak to the media about this guy? <laughs> yeah, they would say he's unprepared, not ready for not ready for the big they, the NFL. They would, but they would destroy his reputation. Yeah. You know, so to me, when you come out with these statements now, and listen, I get it. Hard to levy an accusation that somebody was out all night drinking, right? Like mm-hmm. that's that's hard to prove. But being an hour late, you're an hour late. Right. So even if you were ready to go, you're still an hour late with no phone call, no call, no show. So the lack of professionalism, preparation, it, it's concerning. It's and, really concerning. And if they would have, if it, you know, to keep going, if Brian would have done that, if he would have showed up an hour late, shuffling, been, shuffling his papers and been like, well, let me just get myself together. They'd be like, oh, no, this guy's not ready. This guy's not taking this seriously. <laughs> Yeah, never mind. We're good. Never mind. We're good. He's like, no, no, no. Let me just. I got my. I found my notes here. I just had to get myself together and just give me a moment. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but do you see? Just going back to the question, do you see this a ripple effect happening with this lawsuit, or you know, kind of feel like it? And if you do, like, what is the time period? Do you just you just had a, uh, you know, prophesize a little bit? I wanna. I wanna be optimistic and say that I think there will be a cause and effect, right? I think teams, whether it's real or whether it's just panic mode, I think teams will make like some immediate little internal changes and that they'll blast all through the media Mm -hmm. in terms of, we've made some changes to our hiring process, but it's real effective change. Mm -hmm. That's going to be time. That's going to take some time because ultimately it comes from, Roger Goodell and the owners. Yeah. And the owners have been very slow to respond to calls for diversity. That's just the truth of the matter. And hopefully this lawsuit and the attention will put pressure on them. I mean, we're talking possibly, you know, the Broncos are up for sale. The Dolphins could be up for sale if there's any truth to the allegations about Mm. the $100,000. And Daniel Snyder's, you know, there's rumblings about Daniel Snyder. So hopefully as as the league moves forward and maybe there's new owners coming in, they're more open to being diverse and inclusion. But I I just think the league has to put in a really, really meaningful policy change that really affects hiring in in the league. But it's going to be some time. Like, I don't think this is going to be a quick fix. Yeah. One of the things that's really why I'm so passionate about this, you know, the first black coach in the NFL went to my mom's high school. I didn't know that. Art Shell. He went to my mom's high school. Uh, That's he's from South Carolina. Yeah. Charleston, South Carolina. He went to Boswell, the same high school as my mom and my aunt. I I grew up across the street from Boswell, literally like 
could walk there. So I'm really interested to see how the league really puts forward some some real change initiative because, you know, what Jay-Z was talking about, we ain't seen. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to get to that. It's funny you say that because that's um, – that's, uh, in two sections. I actually want to, before we get to that, I want to shift the conversation a little bit and talk about corporations. Okay. Um, and in order to do that, um, I want to play, I'm going to play a clip here that I think is apropos. So just bear with me. Okay. You're asking me to do something impossible. You're asking me to take the will for the deed. I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know as Malcolm X once put it, it's the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That's what's a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me. That doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks I give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. So, and that's for those who don't know, um, that's James Baldwin, one of my favorite authors. Um, and he has a great quote um, that goes along with that, that great clip is, I cannot believe what you say because I see what you do. Yeah. And I say all that to say because I teamed that up because it's Black History Month. And I just started really kind of going down the little rabbit hole here about all these corporations that give off these platitudes of Black History Month, right? And sending out tweets and everything like that. But then, you know, that's what they're saying. But then you look at, let's say, Microsoft gave $135,000 to senators um, that filibustered the voting rights. Verizon gave a, you know, did a Black History Month post, but they gave $126,000 to senators that filibustered against federal voting rights. You know, Google, 99,000. Dell, 41,000. Amazon, you know, uh, 30,000. Right? Uh, Facebook, you know, uh, 127,000. Metaverse. Is it Metaverse? Yeah, the Meta. Yeah, right. Meta. You're right. You know, all these, they've done all these platitudes of celebrating black history and celebrating black people, but that's their tweets. But then their actions are showing something else, something that directly affects, because their tweet doesn't affect black culture. Right. But voting rights does. Yeah. And I say all that to say, um, which leads me into, you know, the NFL, when they did this thing a couple weeks ago, and they had these things on the back of the helmets and on the field, stop racism and and stop hate, you know? And uh, I thought it was really, really fascinating because I'm like, okay, like, here we go with the platitudes, right? It's like the city's painting Black Lives Matter on the streets, but nothing changes. You know, that type of thing. 
you know, I, and I, I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on when you have these performative aspects of allyship, but it's not really shown in the work and actions. Right. I mean, that's part of what we've seen throughout history, right? We've seen people make a lot of statements yeah, you know, and, and say a lot of things that sound good, but when the actual receipts are shown, their actions are not really reflecting some of the things that they've said. Mm-hmm. And the NFL, you know, we saw with the Kaepernick situation. They were so dismissive of Cap, So dismissive. Yeah. And, and then after the lawsuit, Roger Goodell comes out and says, yeah, maybe Kaepernick was right. It's like, you think? <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's, you know, the truth is it's in their best interest not to, to take these things very seriously. Yeah. You know, to be honest, it's in their best interest because if they do, then they have to admit we have a real problem. Yeah. When we admit we have a real problem, then now our fan base is now privy to the fact that we haven't been operating in a way that is really above board. Well, and this is beyond it. And then our fan base is going to have to look themselves in the mirror and be like, do I have a problem? And that's what fans don't want to do. They don't want to look at something and it reminds them of their own character. No question. And let's be honest. This is big money. Yeah. NFL does not want to jeopardize big money. Yeah. The owners do not pay Roger Goodell to lose money. No. And if you start talking about issues in a country that is already very divided along racial lines, Mm -hmm. and you start making this very present in their face in a more substantial way, they will have repercussions. And I think that's where the NFL has just decided we're more interested in making money than we are in making change. Mm. And, and they're not alone in that, right? They're, they're really not alone. There's a lot of people, there are a lot of companies and corporations, like you said, to your point, who fall into that category. Right. You know, I think we, what we have the responsibility to do is to continue to push for change, continue to support people who are pushing for change elect people who want change and with this Brian Flores situation, he needs allies. Yeah. And he just need black allies. Yeah. He needs black, white, uh, Spanish, whatever you are, female, male, he needs allies that will step forward and say, you know what? I've too have been the victim or been in situations where I felt discriminated, where there's been bias, where there hasn't been, a true process to give me an opportunity. I've been marginalized, whatever the case may be mm-hmm. that Kurt flood didn't get. Yeah. He needs that. He needs that in the worst possible way. He needs white coaches to step forward and show support. He needs black coaches. He needs white GMs. He needs black GMs. He needs hopefully some of these owners to step forward and, and say, you know what? We do need to make changes. This, this rule in this, process is not fair and the numbers indicate that it is not fair and it is not working so hopefully somebody will have the courage to step up and support him highly unlikely but i'm optimistic and i actually want to to point out too in that james baldwin clip he mentions that the um the most racist uh, time in america is 12 at high noon talking about churches but then we often think about how people think football is religion 
and fo- and football happens in noon. So I thought that was really an interesting clip in of itself because I think it was really appropriate to what the discussion what we were talking about today on a number of levels, whether on the on the uh, surface or the sub subversive level. Um, I mean, so, things so many quotes, man. You could use. But oh, yeah, I know. Go- I know. I literally have a whole library of. Them. I'm, I'm going to bring them bring them out throughout the year because I love James Baldwin. Um, so let's talk. We talked about Kaepernick, right? Um, yep. What do you see is his legacy? But before we do that, uh, I have another clip that I thought was pretty cool um, that I think will take us in an interesting direction. So, okay. Yeah. Father, you know, every time I speak, I want the truth to come out. You know what I'm saying? Every time I speak, I want to shiver. You know, I don't want them to be like, they know what I'm going to say because it's polite. They know what I'm going to say. And even if I get in trouble, you know what I'm saying? That ain't that what we're supposed to do. It's, I'm not saying I'm going to rule the world or I'm going to change the world. But I guarantee that I will spark the, the, the brain that will change the world. And that's our job is to spark somebody else watching us. We, we might not be the ones, but let's not be selfish. And because we're not going to change the world, let's not talk about how we should change it. I don't know how to change it. But I know if I keep talking about how dirty it is out here, somebody's going to clean it up. So, um, obviously, that's Tupac Shakur. Um, and we talked about with uh, sparking the change, right? Yep. And do we think that Kaepernick was successful? Well, I think in my older age, I always answer that question with a question, which I know is true. I, I really think it boils down to how you define success. Mm-hmm. And I think Cap's mission to me in a lot of ways was to bring awareness to the fact that systemic racism, police brutality within our communities is an ongoing and prevalent issue that we all need to take note of. Mm-hmm. Then I think from that standpoint, yeah. Okay. I think about a lot of awareness. I think he made a lot of people uncomfortable you could just tell by the reaction, right? Like the, the there was just an uncomfortability that was in the air during that period. Right. And it dominated a lot of news stories and sports channels. I think viewership for the NFL was down one year. Yeah. And so I think from, from that standpoint, was it a success? Yeah. I think he brought awareness. He made a lot of people take note and stand up. And that to me is a credit to him and his kind of integrity and character. Has it made a real change in the NFL and the way they do business? No. Yeah. It hasn't. You they know, bring in Jay-Z. Jay-Z comes in with the song and dance. And that's what I want to talk about. Like, what is your thoughts on Jay-Z's partnership with the NFL this, at this time? Like, you know, he's... Cause I, I find it fascinating that, you know, his position whatever that position is, it would help curating the NFL as palatable to black audiences. You know, I would love to, I hate commenting on, because I, I don't really know what Jay's objective was. And <laughs> I, I, I did not like the we're past the kneeling comment. Yeah. It, it was really kind of dismissive it in was. a sense. Yeah. And that bothered me. I don't understand this partnership with the NBA, with the NFL. I don't like w- social justice initiatives. Like, w- what does that have to do with affecting real change within the NFL community amongst the people who profit from right. black 
and all of those things. So I don't really know where his partnership, what is rooted in other than the halftime show. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to really, I don't want to make too many comments because I'm not, I'm just not really sure what the partnership is supposed to be doing. Yeah. Cause I haven't seen any tangible fruit that says, Oh, this is what their aim was. Right. But I saw a couple commercials that were like, okay, uh, cool. Right. But I, just really not Did aware. it really move the needle, right? Because yeah. I, I don't I mean, know. Around talking about, did you see the latest Jay-Z commercial? With, like, nobody's talking about that. No, no. It, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, he's such a huge linchpin in our black culture. For number, and, you know, respectfully so. But in this realm, we have yet to see his impact. Outside right. of the, you know... The, I'm sure the halftime shows, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. and shout out to Rihanna. Cause Rihanna was like, yeah, I don't give a shit. I'm not, I'm still not participating. Like, <laughs> you know? So, you know, so, um, but it's, it's fascinating. And I'm going to, you know, do a podcast just on that in itself, as far as like, you know, black entertainment and the commoditization of talent. But I, I'm just fascinated because, you know, he made this whole kerfuffle about we're past kneeling and yet there was a direct line of Brian Flores lawsuit and Kaepernick's, you know, um, protest and, you know, Ka- Kaepernick, remi- it's his, he's still an, the elephant in an NFL room that yeah. they refuse to address. Right. And, you know, and I have my, I'm, I have a very complicated viewpoint on Kaepernick, which deserves, deserves his own pod, but it doesn't, change the fact that he was ostracized and he was blackballed for taking a stance right against this institution yep you know which i have a problem with you know and go ahead what really moved me was was when they have that press conference with jay and roger Goodell and tiki barber yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I felt like Jay's been such a huge proponent in his music lately of, you know, black pride and black excellence and black people. You know, he had the thing with Elliot Wilson and B-Dot where he talked about black people not supporting each other. And then you go and have this meeting and, and pretty much push Cap to the side. It's like, wasn't that an opportunity for black excellence for two black men to get together and work on a solution together that would benefit our people, that would benefit our community? Right. You know, you've you've been this huge proponent of independence and, you know, black people have to stick together. And we and all of this, you know, 440, 444 and, and these interviews. And then we see you on TV standing next to the NFL commissioner saying we're past kneeling. Right. That right. was to me like that was it's very confusing. This is of what your music has been saying the past five years. Right. Very conflicting images. Yeah. yeah, it's just a conflicting image to me. And that's yeah. why I, I'm, I don't want to cast judgment because I don't know all the intimate details, but it just wasn't a good look. Yeah. yeah. It, it wasn't a good look. And, and you could see it in just how divisive it was even in our own community. To this day, still. Yeah. Like, it's still, like, divisive. If right. you talk, right? Right. You know, um, it's that balancing of, like, our respect for what, Hove is brought to the culture, but also it's like, did you just pimp us out? 
You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, did you just pip us out? Like, are you still big pipping? Yeah, you still big pipping, but in a different way. You know, so um, you know, so hey, you know what Dame says, man. I know, yeah. You cannot trust Jay when it comes to money, baby. Yeah, because he's he always going for self. Yeah, <laughs> listen, what if, uh, Kanye said? Kanye said, uh, Jay admits that he's selfish. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, he said it too. Yeah, yeah he did. He said, Jay admits he's selfish, you know? And Dame said, everybody knows Jay's selfish. He yeah. said, everybody knows Jay's selfish. He everybody know that. Yeah. Um, you know, there's probably a whole, not that probably, there's a whole pot I can do on Jay. So I actually want to um, switch gears here and it's almost in the same light, but really get into your bailiwick here and talk about uh, why do you think the NBA is so different? And I partly, let me, I'm going to lay the foundation here by saying my theory goes back to David Stern in 1979 seeing that the world functions off of the commercial vi- viability of individualism and star-driven league. So he, especially when Magic was introduced and then Larry Bird, and he saw that we can grow this brand into a global you know, platform because we can focus in on what makes it special, which is the stars. Right. That's my opinion. Well, what do you think? I think the NBA is more progressive than the NFL. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that has to do with NBA players have a lot more weight than NFL players. Yeah. I think that's a big part of what sells the NBA is different than what sells the NFL. The NFL is all about the shield. It's all about the NFL. Mm-hmm. And the NBA uses faces and names on the back of jerseys to sell its league, right? So right. You, you're intimately kind of involved with knowing who LeBron James is, who Kevin Durant is, who Steph Curry is, who, you know, the superstars in our league are, whereas outside of maybe five NFL players, they could be in the same restaurant as you sitting next same table and you wouldn't you wouldn't know who they are not the casual fan not maybe people who know sports but the casual they would know whereas you you could be a casual and know three members of the orlando magic you know so right i think part of it is the star power that the nba has i think adam silver to his credit has made it more of a priority since he's become commissioner for minority diversity hiring to be a part of the league mm-hmm. you know, they made a real push in terms of hiring more women yeah. and let's be completely honest the last two or three years during the pandemic with the black lives matter movement with this push nationally i think that's been part of the push in the nba to make sure that we're not falling too far behind the times and that's why this last summer you saw a record number of black coaches hired yeah so I think that had a lot to do with some of the changes that you've seen with the NBA. But I do give the NBA credit. They are definitely more progressive than the NFL and Major League Baseball. We haven't even talked about Major League Baseball. No. We, <laughs> actually, I, I, I do have clips from Major League Baseball, too, that um, highlights just the, the pejorative sense of how they viewed uh, black management. Um, but, you know, I don't I, I I'm not going to go there uh, because we're already late in the hour here. So right. the um, the fascinating thing about the NBA is how they embrace the idea of black coaches. And 
as opposed to like these other leagues just mentioned, Major League Baseball and all the to the NFL. Um, why do you think that's so palatable? Why do you think the owners, because these are still rich white men owning multi-billion-dollar franchises, why do you feel like the owners in the this particular sphere are so comfortable with that with these I, this idea of black leadership? Because they're all it's all in the same. Yeah, what do you say? Uh, <laughs> nah, okay. <laughs> Listen, man, there's 30 NBA teams. Yeah. How many black head coaches? I don't know. That's a good question. I didn't look. Like seven? Like, let's, you know, Chauncey, Wes, Ime, Jamal. Now, those are all hired this summer. So that's four. Doc is five. Ty Lue is six. Don't, cu- don't count Alvin Gentry and my Kings. Okay, yeah, I won't even count Alvin. <laughs> We're not we're not even part of the league. <laughs> Monty is seven and Willie Green is eight. And four, five of those guys were hired last summer. So you have eight, mm. five were just hired mm. out of a 30 team league. Mm. Let me see if I miss anybody. Let me go through it real quick. Oh no, nine. Steven Silas in Houston. Oh yeah, yeah. Who else? Make sure I'm not missing nobody. I wanna Brooklyn, New York. Oh, ten. JB Bickerstaff. He was hired two years in ago. In Cleveland. Yeah, so he's ten. Yeah. Anybody else? I mean, just I don't want to shortchange nobody. We talk about Boston. We talk. Oh, Nate in Atlanta. So that's eleven. Okay, so so, so the NBA. Like, yeah, that's why I said they're more progressive than the NFL. Mm-hmm. But six of those guys were hired last summer. Mm. Yeah, uh, so I but, think there has to be context. I give, like I said, I give Adam Silver a ton of credit. I know for me personally. I was involved in some of the meetings we had about hiring a coach mm-hmm. and our owner, Ted Leontis, our general manager and president of operations, Tommy Shepard, they were absolutely in alignment that they wanted diverse candidates and they wanted the best possible person for the job. And we ended up hiring a black coach, but I think there's still a long way to go for all of our leagues in terms of management coaches it's it's just the, we're scratching the tip of the surface right yeah but i give the nba credit is that they are way more progressive yeah than than the other leagues yeah. but all of the leagues have ways to go yeah. yeah all of them like i will not sit here and be i would not be honest if i sit here and say oh man the nba's figured it out no yeah. we've got work to do internally Females need to have more representation, but I give them a ton of credit. Like I said, Adam has made it a very well-known priority that he wants to promote diversity. Yeah. Um, but you even said that your your owner Ted Leonis. He said he he was on the on the books Best for course. saying I we need to yeah. we need to consider this very strongly. So Absolutely. that's Absolutely. entirely different than the NFL. Cause not like your owner's a poor man just operating a broke franchise, you know. Right. So, so you know, he'd very much the fact that it came from the top, and that and that's where I'm saying, like, I just I find it fascinating that you know, there's a it's all one big social club. If you own a professional team, especially in this world, especially in America, the pot gets smaller, you yeah. know. So they all operate in the same rooms, you know, more or less, and so. Why is it that side of the room is more 
has the appetite to do it than the other side, which is I, I'm just fascinated by it. I don't know what the calculus is in that. It's an interesting question. I think there's a lot of variables. I think we've talked about one, the difference in the commissioners and yeah. the way they disseminate information. I mean, the way they push out information in terms of how they want their league to look. I think that's a big part of it. I think you look at the owners in the N- NBA, there's a lot of new owners. Yeah. yeah. NFL has a lot of owners who've had their, their teams for quite a while. Yeah. I think you also have to look at NBA players have more power. They have more equity involved in their mm-hmm. sports and NFL players yeah. because of the contracts. Yeah. So, I, I think that's really the, and I, you know, a part, and that's just my thought. I really do think it's because it's a star centered league. A big part of it, man. Yeah. Big part, big part of it. You see LeBron James and Steph and Kevin and all of these stars out here marching. Yeah. <laughs> ending rallies. Right. Talking about systemic racism on their social media platforms. Chris Paul. It makes a difference. Right. Yeah. It does. No, it, it definitely makes a difference. I definitely would agree that that has a lot, a big part of it, you know. And I, I do think that there's a reason. That is the reason why the NFL does not want it to be a star-centered league. They want it to be what they call themselves the shield. And so, like, because they, they don't want players to be bigger than the game. And because they understand that once a player becomes bigger than the game or the team of it in itself – then the team becomes secondary to that personality. And the right. NFL is very, is, they're very keen on like, you know, they're, they're, they're very quick to like, somebody can, can literally rush for 1,600 yards and then they could be out of a job 14 months later. They could be cut from the team, you know? Yeah. And, and listen, there also is a, a financial element to that too. Right. The NFL owners get a bigger chunk of the pie mm-hmm. because they're giving out less, mm-hmm. you know? So th- th- it's in their best interest to keep the contracts where they are because ultimately they, they get a bigger piece of the pie at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Where NBA players are at the table like, nah, we want more. Yeah, that's, that's true. All right, so, so I think so I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go, I'm, I didn't mean to kill you. I'm done. Go ahead. Because um, I know you got to get back to them babies. I always, every time you come on, I got I to gotta ask you a question. A Kobe story. Before that, I want to play just a small Kobe clip, um, and you know, because you know, that's you know, uh, I, have to, I have to do it. Is it a lonely existence? Leadership is lonely. It is, but that's fine. Listen, Stevie, stand right there. I want you to go there early. Listen to me. Go there early. I'm uh, not going to be afraid of confrontation to get us to where we need to go. I think it's, it's um, there's a big misconception where people think winning or success comes from everybody putting their arms around each other and singing Kumbaya and patting them on the back when they mess up, and that's just not reality. If you're going to be a leader, you can't, you're not going to please everybody. And you got to hold people accountable, even if it's, uh, even if you have that moment of being uncomfortable. Matter of fact, get your hands off me. Don't touch me the rest of the script. Get your hands off me. So, Bean, give me, give me some, give me some, uh, you know, a good bean anecdote or story, you know, <laughs> good bean antidote. I, I think the last part of that clip is a good bean story. <laughs> we had a guy on our team named Sasha Buya chick and yeah. Kobe is just 
torment him, man. I mean, he just tormented him every day. He would force him to guard him and just beat him up, score on him. And he could talk, you know, Kobe talk Serbian or whatever language. I think Sasha was Serbian, I think. Kobe was talking Serbian? Don't hold. On. I might be lying. Whatever language Sasha spoke. Oh, whatever. Spoke. I'm just saying. Like, oh my god. But you know, he he did because him and Luke. Remember the story with him and Luka Doncic when they were talking. Yeah, yeah, Luke, yeah. He was talking Slovenian. Yeah, yeah. Serbian around and it was Kobe. So, but I think it, it might have been Italian or some language that Sasha spoke. Because you know, in Europe they speak multiple languages. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk to him in his language, and they only those two guys could understand. It used to be crazy. But I, I just what was interesting. I I really want to focus on what he said about the the leadership being lonely part. Yeah. You know, I don't think people fully understand what it was like for him when Shaq left. Mm. When Shaq got to LA and Kobe was young, part of Shaq's frustration was he was under the gun to win a title. Yeah. And a lot of his pressure and a lot of his stress and a lot of his frustrations that aimed at Kobe were really built on the fact that he felt he needed to win a title. Yeah. And so their relationship dynamics were really strained because Kobe was young. Yeah. He wanted to prove he was the guy and Shaq was trying to prove he could win a championship. And so then it was funny because then Kobe eventually got to be in a position that Shaq used to be. And not that he had to prove he could win a title, but that he could win a title without Shaq. Without Shaq yeah. And that was a very lonely existence mm. because you're on a team with guys who just playing. Yeah. They just hooping. Yeah. But you're under the scrutiny and more so because Shaq goes to Miami and wins a title with D Wade. Yeah. And I just, I remember being with him and, and practicing and just sometimes we, you know, we sat on the bus at the back of the bus together and we sat next to each other in the plane, me, him and LO and Aaron McKee. And I just remember that frustration that he was carrying. And so when I hear that clip, I understand he was truly feeling that loneliness because he knew they don't have the same pressure that I have right? Yeah. to win. Yeah. And that's why part of his leadership style was so hard because he had to get them to understand winning is all that matters. And we we didn't necessarily have that. We didn't have that pressure, you know. And so hearing him talk about the loneliness of leading, and I, I, I tie that into that's why so many great players in a lot of instances feel misunderstood. Yeah. Because they have a pressure and an expectation that the other 11 guys do not feel or do not face so well let, let's parlay that into even a bigger conversation right so leadership i was having this um conversation with uh, a elected official the other day and they remarked how tough it is and how you know tough the position is and in my mind i wanted to say well you need you need to suck it up i know it's easy for me to say <laughs> on this side of the table but Kamar, that's very insensitive. Yeah, man. but I, I, that's what I wanted to say. But you know why? Because I was like, this is the this is the job. This is part and parcel of the job. This is leadership. Leadership requires you. You're not I, as much as I believe in you. As much as I will support you, but I'm not in on that side of the table. I am not 
in your seat. And part of the job is the lonely experience of being at the top of the totem pole. And even if you talk about what players, even if they're not a leader, quote unquote, on that team, they're probably a leader in their respective um, silo sphere of their families or community. So they they have to be they have to again they're isolated in themselves, and then they go onto a team where they're one of eleven or one of fifteen, right, right, you know, and right. they're not even a top. So like anytime you're you're separated based on your talent or position from the rest of the herd you know, then it becomes an isolating experience. But, that, you know, honestly, that's just part of the job. So I'm going to challenge you on that, right? Okay. Because a couple of things. Number one, that's often why leaders end up turning to dysfunctional coping mechanisms. Absolutely. Yeah. Because people say that to them. Like, you got to suck it up. This is what you signed up for. This is da-da-da. And that is really, really hurtful. Mm. Because the question becomes then – who can I express this to? Right. Because this is lonely and it is tough and it is hard. And yet when I turn to people to tell them my frustration, they're like, you got to suck it up. So I would challenge you that that is not a really effective way. To well, I didn't, I didn't say that to that person. No, no, but no, just for people who say that or think right. that about leaders when they express frustration. The second thing I would say is oftentimes when you are a leader and you are in situations you more than so than anybody need support mm -hmm. because so few people do understand what you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And even if I don't, I don't know what it's like to leave. I can at least offer support. And I think there's a way to get feedback without them feeling attacked. Right. Here's the third part. Me and Alicia, she's been really, really affected by the story of the young lady who jumped off the building. Yeah. And we've sparked a bigger conversation about high-functioning, depressed people. Yeah. Which is going to be a podcast, by the way. And a lot of leaders yeah. are operating as highly functional depressives. I agree. And so we have to be careful about how we communicate with people who we feel like just because you're a leader, you should have it under control. Well, no, and I, I want to make sure I... I no, we know you didn't say it, but you yeah, thought. I, it. I, but no, but even still, I want to make sure at Lane Foundation, the fact that I was at that place in where I was talking to this person shows my support. The fact that I was encouraging them, and but in my, you know, and I may think certain things, but I will try to communicate a way, a sense of empathy and connection, because I don't want this person to feel like they're already more isolated than they are, you right. know. Um, and you because, are. Let me squeeze this in because listen, me and you can, me and you can relate to this. You a father and a husband, right? That job is lonely sometimes. It is very lonely, yes. Imagine you going to talk to me and saying, man, prof, man, it's been tough. My wife's getting on my nerves. She ain't giving me no sex. My daughter's is crazy. They tripping. And me being like, man, suck it up. Yeah. Imagine how you would feel in that position if somebody you turned to for support, their response was, man, you signed up for that when you married her. Right. And, and, and I'm only telling you this because I <laughs> used to right. be that person. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> I used to be the person who would be like, man, you got to yo, you got to you got to handle this. This is what it is. Right. And and being around people who've been in that position and, and really having an opportunity to see what it does to them. I have really understood the, the thought behind a lot of leaders are secretly bleeding to death, mm. not literally 
but figuratively because they don't have anywhere to turn. They don't, who can I talk to when I'm in this position? Yeah. You know what we should do? We should do a podcast on leadership. Uh, I'm with it. Yeah, that's what we should do. Um, I think because there's a lot I can really. The most understood things in the world because I had this conversation, one of our meetings with all of our front office people, and I said this on on one of the calls. I said, there are very few leaders in the NBA, but everyone thinks they're a leader. Mm -hmm. They don't know what leadership really is. They think leadership is after the game, when the media comes over to you, you say stuff like, this one's on me. Right. They think that's leadership. Right. But if you saying that, but you're not, like we said with James Baldwin, but your actions are not following that. Right. It's hollow. I really want to have this conversation. That's a really, nah, we, that would I mean, be a dope pod, I think. It's kind of like dissecting the aspects of leadership. I'm, I'm You know what? I'm going to put that on the calendar. I'm going to put that on your very busy calendar. Okay. <laughs> so we could actually. It's running by my kids, bro. That's it. I, I, I feel you. I feel you. Um, okay. I'm good. Um, so give me your final thoughts on everything we just spoke about. Um, I'm going to give you the the floor here to express any final thoughts on anything you can, you can pick. I'm up. just hopeful that this Brian Flores situation starts the process of not only bringing awareness, but really forcing people to have some hard conversations about how we can actually change the hiring and the diversity, not only in the NFL, all sports and just businesses, period. Yeah. We need to have a real conversation about inclusion about diversity yeah a real conversation about how we can make the playing field fair and equal it's 2022 and i I really believe that what he's doing is brave it's courageous but like we talked about let's not make him kurt flood let's not have him be ostracized and not feel supported and never feel the best i i'm hopeful that he gets to benefit from his own stand his own courage as opposed to 40, 50 years from now, people be like, you know what? He had a point. Right. And so I, I'm hopeful that we can make that happen, that we as a collective can come together. And that when when this is, when we look back on this in history, it was a turning point. It was a, a real point of change that we can see clearly, you know, in all of our lives. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm excited about that. And, you know, to my last point, I really want to stress that we have to really be careful about how we embrace and think about leadership and leaders. And yes, it's a huge responsibility and you should not sign up for it if you're not willing to deal with all that comes with it. But I really think we have to be very careful about how we handle, care, uh, encourage, support, and communicate with people in leadership positions because so many times they're afraid to speak out about what they're suffering through because they feel like people will not understand and their first comment and response will be rooted in you signed up for this. Mm. Other than that, happy black history month. <laughs> happy black history I month. More because black history year is what we do, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know you guys, you guys are um, really intentional about that. Um, so last week on the podcast, I mentioned how I wanted this podcast to be a, Love letter to black culture. So I'm doing this thing where weekly I act like I'm writing a letter to black culture. So this week, dear black culture, today we talked about themes revolving around representation, a common story that is that most black folk often think about when trying to access white spaces. 
This conversation started because a black man, once again, wanted to take on an organization that dubs itself The Shield. The Shield. I often found that term so fascinating. It's because the NFL says that, above all else, the game is bigger than one individual. Which is preposterous when you think about it. Because it's the individuals that make up the game. But the message is clear, though. To drive out the individual individuality of oneself is in, into greater than the whole, no matter if that whole benefits that oneself. As black people, we are used to taking on things that are deemed bigger than us. It's in our DNA. It's our bloodline, our le- legacy. You see, sports has a remarkable way of exhibiting life's greatest truths. That whether it's an NFL team front office, C-suite, or governor appointment, or an executive team placement, the shield of tokenism is designed to guard its truest intent, the overall protection of white supremacy. The NFL is ironic because it's actually a paragon of America, rich white men not being held accountable. White supremacy is so screwed up that mediocre people who run the world have the audacity to see and meet you and say you don't meet the minimum qualifications that they themselves couldn't even pass. But the beauty of collectiveness is that we are not satisfied, satisfied just with one person who got the job, especially if it's designed so that the walls of shield, the walls are designed to shielding true equality. Everything about it must crumble because we know that it's not until the old shield is broken that all of us are gifted with the right opportunity. Everything must fall down. And it's because of that, I think we're going to write out with this particular song love y'all black people see y'all next week She's so self-conscious, she has no idea what she's doing in college. That major that she majored in don't make no money, but she won't drop out her parents to look at her funny. Now, tell me that ain't insecure. The concept of school seems so secure. Sophomore three years ain't picked a career. She like, fuck it, I'll just stay down her and do it. Cause that's enough money to buy her a few pairs of new ears. Cause her baby daddy don't really care. She's so precious, with the peer pressure. Couldn't afford a car, so she made her daughter a lady. Yeah, it's so long that it look like weave Then she cut it all off, now she look like Eve And she be dealing with some issues that you can't believe Single black female addicted to retail